Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Slappy Pappy Wayne Wayan. Let's dim the lights and start the show. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Planet Express. Planet Express, our crew is replaceable, your package isn't. <laughs> Let me guess. Futurama. You, some of uh, <laughs> Welcome to The Pestle. I'm Wes. And I'm Todd. And this is a show where we like to break apart movies and see what they're made of. Uh, usually from filmmaker perspective, I've been a full-time filmmaker for six and a half going on seven years. And Todd... That's crazy to say that out loud, right? That is really crazy. Yeah, old honestly. balls. So old. <laughs> yeah. And Todd is actually a full-time producer. Yeah. Um, a badass producer at that. Thank you. And it's always kind of fun sitting and talking about any given movie with you just because uh, I know we're all... It's funny. We have similar tastes, but we often bring completely different ideas to the table. Yeah. And that's always like really exciting uh, to be able to sit and talk. I mean, I guess we could talk with anybody and it would be kind of fun, but because of how well I know you, it's always a little bit more fun for me yeah. uh, to, to hear or to know when you're about to say something. Well, I think one of the things that makes us different is that you are a very detailed person. You are like, like super anal, like very detail oriented person. And I absolutely am the opposite of that. I'm not detailed at all. Uh, in fact, even the way that I produce is like very off the cuff and like, what, what do you need now? Okay. And and do it right then. You know, it's just like, I'm okay with leaving a little, little bit at the ends to like see what happens. And you are very not like that. (laughs) You need everything planned out and like, you know, you, yeah. yeah. Which is funny because I, I wouldn't say I'm like that in general. No, I know. That's, I know. But whenever it comes to the stuff, when it comes to this, I can't handle, like psychologically, I cannot handle looseness. question marks. Yeah. 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 Like I need to know we're going to do this and then we're going to do this. And yeah. This is already taken care of. Yeah. Uh, or else I can't rest. I won't get any sleep before the project or. Yeah. And so, yeah, doing this show is totally helping me. Well, uh, this is a perfect example to interrupt you. <laughs> You have notes. Right. I don't think I've ever written a single note. <laughs> Just like, you know, that that's the perfect example right there. <laughs> that's such a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And I have a whole litany of notes for today. Well, let's get into it then. We're going to be doing Catch Me If You Can today. So if you haven't seen it, go ahead and pause this episode and go watch it, please. And then jump right back in. Yeah. What's the rundown? What are we going to cover? So we're going to talk about cinematography. We'll talk a little bit about movie tricks. I have a two or three things, uh, some story techniques and probably a lot more. I, we usually get into a good Spielberg debate. Oh yeah, (laughs) this is going to be good. Uh, so quick synopsis of the film, a seasoned FBI agent pursues Frank Abagnale jr. Who before his 19th birthday successfully forged millions of dollars worth of checks while posing as a Pan Am pilot, a doctor and a legal prosecutor directed by the great Steven Spielberg screenplay by Jeff Nathanson, uh, based on the book by Frank Abagnale Jr., starring Leonardo DiCaprio as Frank Abagnale Jr. Man, saying it over and over again. <laughs> You're not done yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tom Hanks as Carl Hanratty, Christopher Walken as Frank Abagnale, Martin Sheen as Roger Strong, and Amy Adams as Brenda Strong. On your head! Drafting. He even has little payroll envelopes addressed to himself. From- Put it down. Drop it! Relax. You're late, all right? My name is Alan, Barry Allen, United States Secret Service. Your boy just tried to jump out the window. My partner has him in custody. I don't know what you're talking about. You think the FBI are the only ones on this guy? I mean, come on. 
Come on, he's dabbling in government checks here. I've been following a paper trail on this guy for months now. Hey, you, you mind taking that gun out of my face? Please, really. I mean, it makes me nervous. You see some credentials. Yeah, sure. Take my whole wallet. <clears throat> you want my gun, too? Come over here, take my gun. Hey, hey, look, just do me a favor. Take a look outside. Look, look out the window. My partner's walking him to the car as we speak. Look. Old guy almost pissed in his pants when I came through the door. He jumped right through the window onto the hood of my car. Hey, Murph. Yeah, call the LAPD again. I don't want people walking through my crime scene. I didn't expect the Secret Service on this. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> well, what's your name? Henry. Carl Henry. Mind if I see some identification? Sure. You never can be too careful these days. <laughs> so good. <laughs> uh, did that really happen? I really hope that that happened. It definitely makes me want to read the book. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know what? I will get to ask him. What? Yeah. He's doing a keynote speech at this, uh, I work at Spiceworks. Mm -hmm. He's doing a keynote speech at Spice World, which no. is in like three weeks, That's four weeks. crazy. Yeah. Four weeks. Yeah. Uh, like the 8th through the 10th. Yeah, October. Ben Nazir, chew the fat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to ask him that because that on, on, unreal. That can't have happened. <laughs> That's too good. That was oh. way, way, way too good. So this was your idea. Yeah. What was the, the, the thought in your head? I know you probably hadn't seen it in a while at the time, right, but yeah. you were itching to watch it. What was those memories that you're like, man, I kind of want to see this moment. Well, I usually wake up really early in the morning to do, you know, like a workout or something. And the first thing I do is I grab a cup of coffee and I, I, just, I have to wake up. Right. And so I like put on YouTube and I just like see what is on the feed. Right. And if some, whatever interests me, I'll like watch that video and then I'll go and do my workout. Right. And it was a, a speech by Frank Abagnale Jr. And so I watched it and he was talking about the movie and Spielberg and, and, and all this stuff in his life. He like told a story of his life, basically this movie. And it just totally made me want to go watch it again because I hadn't watched it in so long. And I, I remember really enjoying it like enjoying it, you know, you watch a movie and, and you can kind of check out. And then there's other movies that you watch and you're like, man, that was fun, you know? And this is one of those fun movies for me. And I thought, I wonder if I still would feel that way watching it again. You know, a few days went by and I still hadn't had a chance to watch it. And then we did, we did an episode and I thought, Oh, this is perfect. Let, give me an excuse, force me to watch this again. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, that's really why. And, uh, his story is so amazing. I mean, it was the, the only time the FBI ever did that. They've still oh, never done wow. that before. They are never done that since pull a guy out, pull of jail. a guy out of jail and put him in the FBI. He's the only person they've ever done that. For. Holy yeah. cow. Yeah. And he never, uh, he's never had a debit card. He only uses credit cards. <laughs> and you know, I was watching this, the speech and I heard him say that and I thought, of course, why? Like, why haven't I been doing that? Why, why would I spend my own money when I can spend someone else's? You know, if, if there's fraud that happens, they take their money and I can fight it. But if fraud happens on my debit card, 
they have my money. And I have, if I have to fight to get my money back, like one, it's probably not going to happen. And it, and literally like a month before it had happened to me and I lost 500 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Of my own money because I've been using my debit card and I thought, Oh my, that's of course, why wouldn't I do that? Plus now, you know, they have credit cards where you Mm -hmm. get double miles and stuff like that. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm just using credit cards and you pay it off at the end of the month. Like you would have spent it anyway. You know what I mean? But then you're getting something out of it and you're spending someone else's money and it's helping your credit. Like it doesn't. So anyway, he, I was watching that speech and it was like really inspiring. And so I wanted to see the movie and the movie is just as freaking good. It is so well done. I mean, this is an argument for Spielberg at his (laughs) finest because it's, it's, I mean, he does serious stuff, you know, he steals a lot of money and you know, he hurts people, but you know, at the same time it is with a lightheartedness that only Spielberg can do in this particular way. And I feel like he did it so well. The acting is fantastic in it. Uh, it just, I lose track. I forget it's Tom Hanks. I forget that it's, it's Leonardo DiCaprio. I just, you know, I'm enjoying this chase yeah. thing, you know, that that's going on. And then when he finally catches him and then, the scene at the end after he's in the been in the FBI and he's about to get on that plane and leave for the weekend. And he said, no one's here. No one's stopping you, you know? And he just lets him go. It's, it was, I really hope that that happened too. Those are the two moments in this film that I really hope happened. That probably did not, (laughs) but I really hope they did. Uh, cause it was just so endearing. You could really feel, you could feel that Hanratty cared for Frank the entire time. Even when, like, even though, like, I think it has probably started the first time he calls him on Christmas Eve and he realizes that he's alone, even though Frank, even though Hanratty is like excited that he knows that, oh, he's alone, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I've got this guy. There's still something about it that's endearing to him and that starts this train of him actually starting to care for, for Frank a little bit. And then that he realizes that like towards the end that like it's, he's just a kid. Yeah. He's done bad things, but he really is just a kid and he's not like a murderer or anything. Uh, so anyway, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. So. And I think you're dead on. I mean, it occurred to me when I was taking my notes earlier today that whenever he goes to bring him those comic books in prison, yes, I was, I think up until today, I thought he was really there to kind of help him get help with some of his cases, but that was totally beside the point. Yeah. He really, he really did care. He was like, he recognized this is just a kid um, who's just had a tough time. And that's such a great, great moment. And yeah, I mean, he went to bat for him. He said it took him what, four years to to convince the FBI to, to bring him in. I mean, like the fact that he was even visiting him, why would Absolutely. he, you know, mm-hmm. like, why would he even visit him? I mean, yes, he brought him, you know, comic books and stuff, but it wasn't the comic books. It was just the fact that he was even there. Yeah. You know, how many times does the cop put somebody away and never see them again? Like, <laughs> I can't imagine it's a very I, big number. <laughs> yeah, probably. So yeah, yeah. And, but uh, their performance is really, you know, what sold it. Yeah. Like it just so well cast and, and, you know. Yeah, I loved it. That was great. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those weird movies for me that when I watch it, I really enjoy it, but I never want to watch it. And I think it comes to the title sequence. I really hate the title sequence. It's appropriate 
because it's trying oh, to it's, cement us in the era with these streaks and these lines, and it's very, it's got this, I don't know, 50s, 60s, Breakfast at Tiffany's kind of vibe, and that's fine, but I just don't like it. It feels mm-hmm. so dated to me, intentionally so, I get it, but it just, I don't know, it, it makes me like, ugh. I don't want to watch this. It does kind of go on for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And I hate those kind of title sequences. I really, really do. And I don't know if I'm generally a big fan of super stylized title sequences anyway. I don't, I mean, outside of maybe like a James Bond. Yeah. I don't seem pointless. Most cases. Yeah. Like I would much rather, I think title sequences are important. If you've listened to any of these episodes, you know, I believe in a good title sequence. I just don't necessarily know that this is a type of important title sequence yeah. that I want because I don't enjoy sitting through it. It's like certain books that I can appreciate discussing that I hate reading. I hate, hate, hate reading. Oh, my God. Uh, one of the great American novels of all time. F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, oh, my God. I'm not doing this right now. We're looking that business up. The Great Gatsby. Oh. Um, yeah. Like, I hate reading that book, but it's a really interesting book to discuss and start picking apart. It's just the act of actually reading the words is so boring to me. And I think that kind of applies to some of the things in this movie, specifically the, the title sequence, but the performances are all so good. Amy Adams. Yeah. Oh my God. Like, and I'm not an Amy Adams fan in most cases. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah, no, that's fair. Like, yeah, but, but this, I am, but she crushes it. God, she's she's so like, per, it's like a perfect role for her. Yeah. She's, and, and watching Christopher Walken, dude, I was going to say, I mean, he, I always love who doesn't love watching Christopher Walken, but watching him ride that line of being a good father and rooting for his boy and do the rightish thing because he's fighting for his wife. So you can see he's got like some integrity and loyalty Mm -hmm. to him, but he's also rooting for his son. He's just rooting for his family the whole time. Um, And it's morally ambiguous, but you can appreciate that conversation of you obviously don't have kids. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's morally ambiguous until the bar scene. Yeah. You know, but in, in the real story, he never saw his dad again. Really? Yeah. His dad died while he was, gone away like Early overseas on. like i don't know if it was like right away it's like a, I, I think while he was in prison overseas because he was in prison overseas that was true but uh he said that his, he never saw his dad again his dad passed those french that bastards. way though he fell downstairs in a subway i was wondering that and broke his neck oh yeah. my god that's horrific i know i know um, but how about that can we talk about that scene real fast in the car or in the plane when he tells Ooh. frank that his dad passes? We most certainly can, sir. Um, do you have that in your notes? I do, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you go. I have just one small I comment. mean, all, uh, yeah, all I, I, you know, here's another, uh, it's another moment of Hanratty showing, like, care for Frank. He slides over a seat, sits right next to him, leans over to him and whispers, to, you know, tells him that his, his dad passed and he said that he was sorry it gives him a moment and then, but then has to back away, you know, but he, he doesn't leave. He stays right there. You know, even though he slides over a seat, he doesn't leave. Um, cause he, again, he knows he's just a kid, but then Leo's acting in that was probably some of his best acting I've ever seen him do just in that one scene. I don't know if I've ever, I mean, it, it's hard 
to really feel some feel someone's anguish on a screen, you know, when they're, you know, if they lose someone or something like that. And I absolutely felt it in that moment of him finding out that his father died. It just was like gut wrenching almost. I mean, there's plenty other examples of like really great acting where you feel it and stuff, but this is what I also love about that performance. And I think it's going right to the heart of what you're talking about is he doesn't just go straight into sadness. Yeah. He goes, he like builds it up. Yeah. Because I think he begins with the first stage of the five stages of grief, which is denial. And that's the first Mm. thing he goes to with, with Carl, with handwriting. He's like, why'd you promise me that you said I could see my dad again? And like, it's this denial that his dad's gone in the first place. Like this guy's lying to me right now. He's done something wrong. And then that transitions right into, you know, being angry and he's, trying to deal with this. And obviously his ultimate reaction is to go to his mother, um, which does not work out. Right. But interesting. That is, yeah. Just sitting there thinking about that. Uh, the other thing that I really love is that we're just as surprised and we go by Frank's reaction. We're in his shoes because we don't know that his dad's died. Yeah. Yeah. We've been living with, with Frank Jr. the whole time. And so whenever we find out we're the only way that we can really process this is through Frank's eyes. And that's such a interesting reveal to hold that back from the audience and let us experience it with Frank instead of any kind of foreshadowing or any kind of hint at what's going on. We are intimately familiar with Frank's relationship with his dad. And now we're going through that loss with him, or at least uh, empathizing with him way more than we would have otherwise. That's interesting. Do we ever see his dad without the son? Do we no. ever do? Yeah. Do we ever see mm. Christopher Walken without, without Leonardo DiCaprio in the scene? No, I don't think we do. I mean, yeah, I, I'm trying to think of not in my head. I think there, the one, one shot when he goes to the bank, when he goes in the bank and tries to get a loan and they don't give him the loan. It's just him and the bank teller, but he's still Leo is still there, there in the car, but waiting. just not in that shot. He's just not in that shot, but he's still there with him. So yeah, that's a good point of like, you know, that's that's a great piece of directing. Yeah. You know, is to do your point. Like we're seeing this through the lens of Frank Jr. So because of that, we're never going to just be with Frank senior. Yeah. You know, we're always going to be with Frank junior with Frank senior. And then he goes away and we're with Frank junior. And then we, he comes back to senior and, but we're always with junior. And so then at the end, when you f- find out the senior has gone, like we're all finding that out. Yeah. That's interesting. And that relationship yeah. has been stripped away from all of us. That's, yeah. But that's, a, and it's such a delicate thing to act when you find out something like that. Like that can't be real acting. Like, there has to be some re- reality inside you to let out yeah. in a scene like that in order to convey it. Right. I yeah. mean, I, I couldn't imagine just like, probably there's yeah. this idea in acting called substitution that in my mind, anyway, it was introduced to me through Uta Hagen and her writing and her work as a, as an actor, actress and coach and teacher, uh, philosopher maybe. And it's this idea that, okay, maybe I've never, I don't want to use this specific example of losing a father. Uh, okay, well, maybe I've lo- never lost a father, but man, I lost a best friend, and it was horrible. I can access those emotions, and whenever I remember finding out 
that I lost my best friend. Like, oh. mm-hmm. And then you start to insert that into the scene work that you're working on. And you're like, okay, yeah, here's where I, here's what I felt physically. Like I was, there was a lot of sudden tension in my neck and my shoulders and okay. And my breath became much shorter. And so you can start reacting to or the memories of what you did experience. So you start substituting these other things in there for that, that you think are emotionally relevant to that scene. Yeah. And that's how as a actor, you can suddenly play a serial killer. Mm-hmm. It's not because you've ever killed anybody or you've killed pets. It's like, Oh, but you remember what it's like to be really, really angry with someone over something. And you can start working out those emotions that way. Uh, that's what makes some of the great actors so great is their ability to recognize the humanity in everybody, no matter what Leonardo DiCaprio is no thief. <laughs> yeah. He hasn't spent, you know, millions of other people's money stolen anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, yeah, you yeah. work out these things as an actor. And, uh, that's, I think what makes some of the best actors so good at what they do is understanding humanity and how we all relate and tie together. Who is the guy that played Magneto, the older guy? Uh, Ian McKellen? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Have you have you seen <laughs> have you seen the the interview with Ian Mc, it's a it's a funny bit <laughs> with Ian McKellen and I I want to say it was it's uh, a yeah, the, the guy from the office the the oh, English Ricky Gervais, Ricky Gervais yeah. where he asks him how how do you act like that? And he tell he tells him he's like I sit down with the director and he says, well, you're going to play a wizard. And I say, well, I, I, I'm not a wizard. <laughs> and the director says, no, you're going to act like you are a wizard. And I say, okay. So when the camera is rolling, I act like a wizard. And when he says cut, I'm back to Syrian. <laughs> Like it's that, that's the thing. It's, it's awesome. Oh, it's, so it's But it's so, it's funny, but it's so true, right? Absolutely. Right. We'll, and we'll insert that there's clip a, in the show notes. Yeah. There's a, there's a million different ways to get th- there, but that in a nutshell is acting. It's so, so good. good. I'll, yeah, I'll find it. We'll put it in the show notes. Oh, that's amazing. So let's go over let's a few things. Uh, dive in, yeah. Cinematography wise, yeah. there's always so much you can learn from a Steven Spielberg, Spielberg film. Like, even if the film you don't like, there's still technically so many incredible things that are just innate in his directing. I'll go through bits and pieces here and there. I didn't really have time to super organize my notes into one nice coherent thing. That's okay. And so we're working with what I don't we mind. got. <laughs> so early on, whenever Frank Jr. goes to school, remember he's got his old school's jacket on and he's looking for directions in the hallway and he gets shoved into the locker by the bully. And what's interesting about that shot is we're with Frank, Frank Jr. And then as he gets shoved into the locker, we start tracking back with the bully. And what's cool about that is it shrinks Frank within the frame. And now suddenly we're seeing him as the world kind of sees him as small and insignificant because he's smaller in the frame. And now we're, we're demonstrating visually what he's feeling physically, which is powerlessness. And I love that. It's such a simple thing. And Spielberg is really, really amazing when it comes to movement, camera movement specifically. But switching back to the, uh, you mentioned earlier, the first Christmas call that they, they have. 
there's some really cool and interesting things I think they're doing with the color in that scene. When we're looking at Carl, we have this nice big wide frame and he's all by himself. But what's cool about that frame is that everything in that scene is blue except him. He's lit by the lamplight, which is giving him nice fleshy tones. Everything else is blue except him. By contrast, Frank seems to be lit blue in his scene on the, on the phone. And everything else in the room is fleshy. And it's kind of giving us a sense that they're on opposite sides of life. And if you think about what those colors mean, to me, it, it, it means that Carl is alive. He's flesh colored, as he should be. And even though he's alone, he's alive. And Frank is alone and dead. Like his coloring is much more blue and everything else is in the, that, that he's around mm-hmm. is alive. And it's also interesting because that's also the scene where uh, Frank gives him his room number. He's like, well, if you want to find me, I'm yeah. in you know, room 3113. And you see uh, Hanratty scribble down, you know, 3113 as the room number. And what's cool about that is it's, it's almost a distinct shape more than a number. And I think that's super useful because it makes it really easy to quickly identify later whenever the scene ends and you see Frank Jr. coming out of the room and suddenly you see 3113. It's like he was telling the truth. And it just makes it so much easier to identify because it's a palindrome. It's uh, this long number, but it's super distinct. And so now you immediately recognize he was telling the truth. Mm-hmm. It's not something that was hard to remember. Yeah, It's visually easy to see. And that's just a smart filmmaking method of, let me make sure that I'm com- uh, visually communicating to the audience everything that's significant in the most easy and digestible way. And he did that through a shape almost more than a number, in yeah. my mind anyway. Awesome. One thing that Spielberg does through is through these oneers, through these one shots, and it's getting multiple coverage in one shot. So like towards the end, when Frank, Frank Jr. walks into Hanratty's office and he's like, hey, can I work with you this weekend? <laughs> There's this, it's a great scene because it seems to continually tighten down on the action. It goes through a variety of coverage in one shot. We have Frank at the FBI and he walks into Carl's office. And when Frank leaves, we push into Carl. So it turns from like this two shot down to a one shot. And it's you can see kind of the wheels turning because that's also the scene before he chases him into the airport. He's like, how'd you do it? How'd you pass the bar? <laughs> but it's smart because he's constantly doing these wonders. And even earlier in the film, if we look through all these wonders that he's doing, for instance, there is the, uh, the handcuffed scene where we're in the hotel and we start low to see that Frank Jr. is handcuffed, not by the hands, but by his feet to the desk. <laughs> yeah. And it's so perfect because Frank runs. So it's very on theme visually that he's trying to stop him from running. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's a clever, yeah. you know, super easy, clever turn of a phrase almost visually, but it's also, uh, and they continue tracking, right? We see the cops and then we see Carl laying on the bed, relaxing, but it's all this nice one smooth, movement that you could do in edits you could do it in a shot here shot there uh shot there oh we have a master wide but spielberg says oh you know what's much more interesting than that is let me just have multiple compositions 
through one shot. Mm-hmm. And even better, we, const- we, we see it later, earlier in the film. I forget. Everything's so disjointed, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But through this montage of Frank Jr. trying to steal, it's him going to one bank after another to another person trying to forge checks uh, and get money. Nobody will do it. And what's really cool about that is it's easier to demonstrate it's a montage when each clip is a winner. And so now we can go taking that same idea of we're going to get multiple bits and pieces of coverage. We're going to slide over as Frank walks in or Frank exits. And it's suddenly we're getting multiple coverage. We're getting all this geography of every space that he's going into. But we're also uh, so there's that visual pleasantness of coverage through one continuous shot. But it's also easier to demonstrate that we've switched to a new scene because now we've entered into a completely new angle, new color, new shot. And we, we've already become acquainted with the geography of the previous shot. Now we automatically know, oh, this is a new scene because the geography has changed instantly through one cut. And so it's such a simple and brilliant, like a well-designed long take you can add life to the shot instead of just these hard cuts. And it's just brilliant, brilliant filmmaking. Um, Makes it feel a little bit more like real life. Yeah. Right? I mean, and the whole movie, you're getting cuts. So it's just a good way to break it up too. You break it up. And in this case, like to your point about in real life, you know, you get a sense of real life because that also helps demonstrate not only the passage of time, but also in Frank's case, like the frustration and desperation, but most importantly, the effort mm-hmm. <laughs> that he's going through for each one of these. Uh, it all kind of comes through visually super easy. Um, on a different note, like Spielberg, and you can see this with like Ridley Scott as well and some other classic filmmakers, he's really big on hazing. Um, and I mean that in, in the sense of fogging up a room with smoke or uh, some kind of ambient atmospheric elements smoke that does a number of things it lowers the contrast of the of the shot so now shadows don't hit quite as hard it lifts the shadows a little bit and it also adds a lot of atmosphere and it helps show light pouring across a room right like the projector suddenly has rays of light the window shades are suddenly casting rays of light it's just visually interesting it's always just a more arresting looking shot and that's one of those things that as a filmmaker as a new filmmaker especially sometimes you're like how do they make everything look so cinematic and i've have a lot of different thoughts about quote unquote cinematic images but that's one of those kind of low-hanging fruit that man if you just rent you know 30 40 bucks on a hazer you can haze up a room shoot a light from outside your window open the shades up like i'm looking at our room right now we have these light shades up well, if you put a big light out there, haze up the room, and now the light's coming in through those shades, well, those shades are providing all these points of contrast that suddenly we have rays of light, and it's like a noir yeah. <laughs> mystery in here all of a sudden. Right. There's also a really cool thing that we played earlier, right, that clip of him being caught almost, right, in the, in the hotel room, the very first encounter with Hanratty, and Frank is coming out of the bathroom, And I love this whole shot sequence because it's handheld. It's super shaky. And it's adding all kinds of visual drama to what's happening. The stress. The stress, the danger, the excitement, the confusion. And it's all just by destabilizing the camera. 
Because otherwise, the camera is very, very smooth and solid. And Spielberg is always very intentional with the movement. And here, he removes all that and just goes handheld. And it's just adding so much tension to the scene. Um, because what's going to happen? And this, they actually repeat this style again in the hospital. Uh, when Frank sees the kid with the busted leg, suddenly, now he's destabilized again. We're kind of experiencing the world as he's experiencing it now. And it's just a very simple way to that I think really only works whenever it's in contrast to everything else that's being done in the scenes. Yeah. Because if everything was handheld, mm-hmm. then suddenly it's like, okay, we're just, we're in a constantly destabilized environment, which can have its effect as well, but it needs to be done with some intention. To that point earlier though, about the hazing, there's also this thing they do a ton of in this film that we've never talked about on the show which is they add nets onto the back of the lens to create a, a, a dreamy, hazy effect on the highlights that's got this kind of angelic halo to the lights. What is that? So a net, or is there's a lot of things you can, you can create this effect with, but it's, it's basically a filter. Like some people may use pantyhose, uh, white or black. They each do kind of different things. I've never done it. I've been kind of too nervous to stick anything because the way you do it, you can put it on the front of your lens, but a lot of filmmakers put it on the back of the lens, like between the lens and the camera. Really? Yeah. Like an actual like pantyhose? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just stretch it really, really taut, and suddenly uh, there's this weird effect that happens through the lighting, and it softens the image just a little bit. The whole movie they did this? I wouldn't say the whole movie, but it felt like a good 50% of it. Wow. Yeah. I'll put, tell you what, I'll put an example lens test in the show notes that you can go and look at. Okay. Um, some examples of without a filter, with a filter, and different v- levels of the filter. And I'll also put a discussion on a cinematography website with all these they pros have to like m- make one now, right? That you can yeah. just insert. Not to, yeah. Right. Yeah, but not everybody. You don't see like Spielberg going, buying pantyhose and putting them across. Really? They had to have something. You would think that everything these multi-million dollar, these hundred million dollar movies do is with thousand dollar pieces of equipment. But in reality, like Deacons is maybe the single best working cinematographer today. One of them, certainly. But he he uses like bed sheets. Like, oh yeah, I'll just... This $10 bed sheet from Walmart is, you know, good enough for me. For what? For like diffusion and a uh, certain balance. Um, That's badass. <laughs> it's so amazing. That's my type of producing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what we got? Bed sheet? All right, throw, <laughs> throw that up. We're going to use that for a bounce. <laughs> Keep the receipt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't take the tag off. <laughs> yeah. Wow, like it's, crazy. It's, it is crazy. I am not a big fan of it. Of that look, personally, it's got this old classic black and white movie look. Like Humphrey Bogart is going to come out any moment, and yeah, it just doesn't. That's one of the things I don't like about this movie is the use of that classic yeah. uh, look. And I get why he's doing it because it's he's trying to represent a, a time period. Yeah, and so it it visually makes a lot of sense. I just don't like it. It's not my Spielberg cup of tea. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> How could you right. possibly understand how liking something Spielberg does? <laughs> but on a different note, like 
there's this interesting thing story-wise. Uh, oh, you know what? While we're talking about camera hacks or movie making hacks, there's, I think, two other things that I think are kind of interesting, which is, for one, music. The use of music in this movie is kind of interesting at one particular point, which is whenever he hooks up with Cheryl in the yeah. hallway. Yeah. Whenever she's like seducing him and getting him on board. There's all this really sexy music for the sexy times. And then it suddenly stops. Like it's a hard cut whenever Frank is like, okay, I'm going to run out and I'm going to cast a check. (laughs) She's like, no, they start debating right then and there. Like, no, 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 you can't do that. How about you do this? He's like, yeah, okay, we'll do that. And then suddenly she's like, okay, with that taken care of, it's like a hard cut back on. The look, <laughs> the <laughs> way, and we start gliding back in on them. Yeah, and it's beautiful. Like it's a great, great edit uh, because it's such a comedic punch through music. It's like one of my favorite moments in the film. Was this before Jennifer Gardner was like yes, big? I think so. Yeah, because that was like one scene. Yeah, in the whole movie, that's all she is. In and out. No pun intended. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I did love that scene, though, because he got paid for it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> she paid him. Oh, it's so, it was so good. And do you think that he knew that that was going to happen? Because he could have grabbed the $1,000 check. No. You know, he was sifting through like 200, 400, 800, 1,000, 1,400. I think, I think his reasoning for that was probably more adolescent in the sense that, oh, maybe, you know, she'll want more for tomorrow or something. Like, mm. I want more just in case. Or maybe that's just his personality. It's a, yeah. More is always better. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> the other little, I call it a movie hack, is and this really is much more of a hack. Whenever he's picking up Brenda from the airport, or supposed to be, he gets out and slams the door. The door doesn't actually close. It kind of slams twice. And what's happening there is they've taped the door lock open so that it does not close. And on the one hand, you can say it makes it much easier to get in and out of the car. Maybe they're having difficulties with the car. Uh, It was just kind of giving them a little hell. But more realistically, what they were doing there is killing the sound for the sound man. Yeah. You you do that in order to, like, prevent all this extra clicking and clacking so you can get clean audio. uh, Insert an actual door sound later in post. Yeah, exactly. And you'll see this all the time. Like, if you watch Friends... They're constantly like fighting with the door to keep it closed. Like they'll slam it shut and then it just kind of bounces back open. <laughs> so you're, I'm kind of ruining movies right now for you. <laughs> Got it. Thanks. Appreciate that. You're all welcome. <laughs> On a couple story notes and then I will be done. It's kind of fun seeing how serious Carl Hanratty is versus everyone else in his organization. Yeah. Like they're all telling jokes in the car and he's like, I got a joke for you. <laughs> F you. <laughs> and then later on, whenever the agent, uh, when they're meeting with Frank Jr.'s mom, and the agent is eyeballing that fork so he can start eating his pie. Mm-hmm. And oh, I love that. <laughs> Frank hands it back to him. He's trying to stab him with the fork. Like, pay attention, man. Yeah. We're, we're working a case here. <laughs> but these guys all take their jobs super relaxed. Like, eh, I mean, we're FBI, but at the same time. This guy's not a murderer. Yeah. He's just- Cash and forge checks. Yeah. yeah. And I love how serious he takes his job. Also, oh, by the way, I, I kind of forgot an, another note. Whenever Cheryl is sexing up uh, Frank Jr., 
I love that they're intercutting Carl doing laundry and having yes, it ruined. Oh my gosh. This, this, I, I forgot about that. It's such a great contrast. And his laundry gets ruined yes. by the old ladies. And she couldn't care less. She's like, yep, that's mine. Yeah. <laughs> that's so good. But I also love Frank Sr.'s mouse story. And I think there's something cool that they do with that, which is whenever Frank Sr. tells a story at the beginning, the mouse crawls out. But in Junior's version later on, the mouse walks out. And I think it's symbolizing their views on life. Or maybe even more that Frank Jr. is advancing his, his father's old tricks. Like, hmm. my father did it, but he was kind of crawling. Yeah. I'm going to show you what it's like to walk. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a super subtle thing that they insert just through that, I don't know, parable or whatever you want to call it. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah. I, man. <laughs> See, I don't cool. notice stuff like that. It's crazy. <laughs> you got to be extra nerd. <laughs> oh, the uh, disjointed timelines. <laughs> so the last thing I'll get to, and uh, we discussed this on a previous episode a little bit, is they show us the future and then they flash back to the past. And it's this kind of designed to keep us guessing how such a dramatic change could happen, right? Mm-hmm. But it also... I think the other clever thing is that it adds scale to the story to juxtapose these very different scenes right up against each other. Because if you, if you were to do it, you know, the, the normal way of the score, the story progresses up until we see this big change, but we don't really realize it because you see this kid become a convict and it's like, oh man, that's how the story went. But if it just happens gradually, you don't really appreciate it. Yeah. But by sticking them right up next against each other, you're like, wow, this kid's life has really gone through a change from the the good kid in the hallway looking for directions, wearing his pretty coat. <laughs> yeah, calling his dad daddy and like like very much a homebody with his parents, like, you know. Like, yeah, it, yeah it, going going from him, you know, longer hair in a prison in the, in the middle of some weird country or some foreign country, all of a sudden, oh no, now we're you know we're we're in his living room and it, this you know upper middle class white family, you know, and it, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And then you see, the first thing you think is, whoa, how the hell did he get from that to that? <laughs> That's nuts. I can't wait to watch the rest of the movie yeah. to see how that happens. Yeah, Absolutely. it's brilliant. It's a brilliant way to set it, it up. It really is. It it adds so much scale to to what you're about to see and yeah. what and what's happening. Um, it, it is. I feel like it's also maybe a little bit of a trick for a movie that maybe doesn't have as as much of a story as this does. Hmm. Like, you know, for a different movie, I mean, other movies where, you know, in the grand scheme of things, maybe not a whole lot of big things happen, but a lot of little things happen that that bring the character from A to B. So to keep it, keep those things, give them a little bit more clout, make them a little bit bigger, like you said, more interesting. You show the end. So then all of those things matter more. You notice them more. That's that's yeah, that's smart. Yeah, it. At this point, like in 2018, this is one of those things too that has become a little hacky. Yeah. Like to, and they don't do this exactly, but it's certainly in that vein of three days earlier. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's, that's such an exhausting trope at this point that you have to be really, really good to pull it off. Yeah. Like Breaking Bad is one of those that 
the opening scene is like, oh, there's this crazy thing that's happening. And then it cuts to like two weeks ago. And you're like, yeah. oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, interesting enough, I just finished Ozark. And I'm not, it's not going to give anything away yeah. with the new season of Ozark. And there's one episode where it shows you something happens. And then it says an hour earlier. Shows you that, and then it says three hours earlier. Shows you that, and then it says a day ago, and then it like it actually goes back, keeps going back. That is, which is really an interesting way to I've, do it. You don't just go back a year or whatever. Yeah, I don't think I've seen that before. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> which is the only reason I brought it up is because like yeah, that's how you yeah you do something a little bit different. Yeah, play with time. That's fine. Like that's a really cool thing. I mean, Christopher Nolan's big on playing with time. Yeah, but reinvent it a little bit. Yeah, like. Do it in a way that you haven't seen done already. Yeah. Instead of just kind of saying, how can I hook the audience super fast and then make them want to hang around? Well, let me show them, you know, 30 seconds of the end and that'll make them ask the question, well, how did we get there? Now I got to find out. Like that's, yeah, it's a little tired, but yeah. uh, if you have a really great story and you're doing something interesting with it, it really works like they do here. They like, have a great story they here. Have a great story. <laughs> this, this shit happened, man. Like this kid did these things just unbelievable, you know, and you sit there and in this, in this, uh, uh, speech that he was telling one, somebody asked him, they said, do you think that you could do this today? And he said, yes. And he like goes into detail of how you could do some of these things as an FBI, a 40 year FBI agent. Like it's just, it's crazy that, and maybe it's just because I, I just it blows my mind that yeah. to even try something like this, as, as opposed to even getting to getting away with it, but that a nineteen year old kid could go and do that, and you, you just think you think oh it it had to be easier in those days, and it probably it probably was for sure, but there are things today like the internet and technology where if you have a certain amount of, of know-how you can get away with a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe even more in some cases, but it's just amazing. This kid actually did these things like just by the way, my name isn't actually Wes. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I'm Frank Abagnale Jr. Oh, I knew it. (laughs) God dang it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's the end of my notes. Yeah, um, I mean it. I so what did you think overall? Like, did it hold up? For you? Yeah, yeah, it really does. It's such a good story and it's such good performances. Yeah, that you can't help but get pulled in all over again by this wide-eyed kid discovering how far, how much he can get mm-hmm. and get away with. And yeah, yeah, I mean, even just if I were to turn off the the volume itself and just watch that camera work. I'd be, I could easily take notes on that alone. Literally. And I mean that so literally. Like, That's actually not a bad idea. I wonder if you had a suggestion for a movie to do that. If I was like, I want to learn how to be a good DP, you know, and about camera movement. If, if what, like what movie, and I'm not putting you on the spot because yeah, yeah. this is kind of probably a hard question, but, but what movie would probably be a good example to do that where you just mute everything and you're just only watching the camera movement? I'm going to totally steal a page out of Steven Soderbergh's book and recommend Raiders of the Lost Ark. Really? He, oh, that's man. the way he did. Um, now that we're talking about it, he turned it off and I think he even made it black and white and said, mm-hmm. I want to study this just from the visual language. And he watched the film and he's like, oh, you know what I'm seeing is there's a lot of left to right movement in here and there's this and that. And so 
he literally went the extra mile. He actually Another posted Spielberg it. Film. Yeah, he actually posted it and maybe even re-edited some of it. Um, but it got taken down. Some people weren't too happy about that. Oh. Wow, <laughs> but, crazy. Yeah, people do that. Man, interesting. It really is. Like, it definitely makes okay. me want to do that now and just sit and study and kind of take some notes. Yeah. But even just watching something with the volume off, I frequently, whenever I'm watching someone's reel, I mute it every time. Oh, yeah. It's a smart thing. Because music can, yeah, totally it, throw you off. It covers up it, so many flaws. Which is crazy because you're watching it. It just goes to show you the power of, of music, man. It really does. Because, yeah, a good track will make a, a crappy reel look much better. Yeah. Which yeah. is nuts. And, you know, that also makes me think, like, when you're when you're going to somebody's house you've never been to and you you have it on the map or whatever and you're trying to find the, the address, why do you turn down the radio? <laughs> I turn down the radio. I'm like, look, you know, it's nighttime, so I'm looking at addre- addresses on, or like street numbers or whatever, and I'm, I'm peering, you know, I'm squinting, and I gotta turn down the radio so I can see. That's a thing. Like, That's people totally do that. It's totally a thing. Yeah. That's weird. I like, do that. Why? Yeah. yeah. Is it because I, I don't know. I don't know. I know you use a lot of energy to see, like, mm-hmm. like to actually, uh, like a lot of brain processing power to actually see. So maybe, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> I digress. Good movie. Good movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so what are we going to do next week? So next week we are going to do It Follows. We're on the fence about doing another movie called Hereditary. Yeah. Shout out to Peter for the request. I'm going to let Todd chew on that. He hasn't seen that movie yet, and I gave him a heads up that there's some... I'm I'm scared, Peter. I'm scared. Okay. Two couple things. One, scary movies. Uh, I'm on the fence about scary movies in general. Um, You just can't unsee shit, you know? Yeah. You can't unsee stuff. And when it's... Violence of a particular type of a particular type. I, 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 it, it's, it's scary. Okay. (laughs) It's scary and and not in a good kind of scary way or a fun kind of scary way, but a like, like, why do I want to, you know, subject Mm -hmm. myself to it? Kind of, kind of scary way, especially as a father. So like, anyway, I haven't said no yet to this, but for right now, we're going to say it follows and, who knows? Maybe in the middle of the week, I'll change my mind. I don't know. Toughy. toughy. Yeah. Yeah. What I want to do it, man. I want to do it. But for now, stay tuned for next week. We're going to be doing yeah. it follows. Yeah. And what's your recommendation for the week? Uh, I'm going to recommend another Spielberg. This might, I don't know if it's my favorite Spielberg movie, but it's uh, certainly his darkest. Uh, maybe. Eh, okay. Anyway, Munich is what I'm recommending. Um, it's a pretty dark one. Maybe it's certainly debatable if it's the darkest. I think Schindler's List deserves uh, some appreciation in that front. But Munich is really, really dark Spielberg. And uh, I think that contrasts really well with uh, not only Catch Me If You Can, but it wasn't a very big hit. Not a lot of people watched Munich. And I feel like it's one of those that really... Why is that? It didn't look like a Spielberg movie, frankly. Oh, stylistically and content. It's just not something you say, Oh yeah, yeah. That's a Spielberg film. It's so good. I think that's, it's certainly one of my favorite Spielberg films. Definitely not the favorite, I guess, but definitely worth watching. Okay. Well, I'll stick with Spielberg then. (laughs) I guess. Uh, yeah, I'll stick with Spielberg and I'll go with empire of the sun. 
Ooh. which I have not seen since 1980, whatever, 92, no whatever. I think it came out in 87, 87. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was seven years old when it came out. So I did not see it when I was seven years old, but I, th- I or like early nineties or something when I saw it and I want to see it again and I haven't seen it. So that's why I'm going to recommend it. Nice. Yeah. Great call. Uh, watching a young Christian Bell is always I mean, really yeah, entertaining. Right? Was that one of his first? I mean, he's... Had to be, right? Yeah. yeah. He's probably like 10. And so don't forget to subscribe and leave us a note. Uh, Want to give another shout out, not only to Peter, but our super awesome uh, new listener. I, I always debate if I'm going to call him is or not. I'm going to call you Israel. So big props, man. I love your comments and your emails. Keep them coming. He has some really great uh, thoughts about Hateful Eight, if you oh. have not jumped on the yes. website lately. But oh. go dive into that. It's really, really good stuff. Yes. And so big thank you for that. And as always, if you want to drop a comment on this specific episode, you can comment at thepestlepodcast.com slash catch me if you can. And we'll end this week yeah. on a quote of the day. What the eyes see and the ears hear, the mind believes. Harry Houdini. Yeah, man. I was debating like who makes sense for like, I think he's a different kind of thief. He kind Mm of uh, steals reality away from you. Yeah. And the ability to kind of make someone see what you want them to see is, you know, the tool of not just, you know, magicians, but also thieves and con artists Mm -hmm. whenever they're doing their thing. They are so convincing. They're so manipulative that you really buy into, yeah, of course you're an airline pilot or yeah, of course, you know, you made that car disappear or whatever. Like it's such an incredible thing. And it's in a sense also a little depressing because to, to accomplish those things, you kind of have to believe in the gullibility of humanity. Mm. And these are two completely different realities. A magician doing it is doing it maybe more out of fun to make you see magic and wonder in life. Whereas a con artist is, is doing it out of a sense of malevolence Mm -hmm. and they're, they're trying to steal the magic and wonder out of life. Yeah. And that's heartbreaking to me because I I wouldn't, I don't, I'm not a very gullible person. Um, but seeing other people conned, uh, is always really heartbreaking. I just yesterday actually saw, a buddy post on Facebook that last year during Hurricane Harvey, someone came through our my tiny Texas town uh, proclaiming to be a FEMA guy. And he started getting resources and uh, kind of conning people out of things. Are you kidding me? In the name of victims. What? It's, it's oh horrendous. And... It's that kind of thing where you make someone believe in something good and something mm-hmm. better than themselves, whether it's, you know, victims or uh, just love, like people yeah. use love all the time as a as a way to manipulate to get money or things, you know, out of it. And it's just really sad and heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, but I, I like to also remember that there's people like Houdini that are doing it maybe for a little bit more grander, majestic cause. Yeah. I love magic. Me too. I love, yeah, there, there's, there's, oh man, what is it on, on Netflix again, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's an, uh, like some, some really great magic shows 
on Netflix, and there's one in particular that I just recently watched, and I can't remember it, and I'm trying to look it up, and I don't know where it is. Especially like close-up magic. Mm. You know, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, you want to believe it, but even if you don't want to believe it, and someone's standing right in front of you and does something amazing, immediately you you want to know. You think, how did that happen? Yeah. The first thing that you think when that, when you see that, like a guy has a deck of cards and he throws it up against a window and your card that you picked is on the inside of the window. How did you do that is the first thing that enters your mind. You want to know how, you want to know the the answer, but you don't really. But you really don't. You know? The magic is so much better. Yeah. yeah. The I used to live with uh, two roommates who were magicians. Um, what? Yeah, professionally. Why am I just now finding this out? <laughs> yeah, and it would, sometimes it would have me help some of the racks. Whether it's as a stage really? or yeah, or in the act. Did they saw you in half? They never sawed me in half. Did they? <laughs> I don't think no. they did. Okay. We did a lot of random crazy stuff. They may have actually done that at one point. I cannot for the life of me remember. But they would do all kinds of weird, silly, crazy things. Oh. That was just so much fun to... It, my analytical brain really appreciated learning some of these secrets. But it was just fun to see the reactions of the crowd too can't beat it it's like it's live theater you cannot beat live theater yeah it's so awesome (laughs) man i wish i knew that that show because it was hilarious too i can't i can't think of it anyway we'll put it in the show notes yeah let's do that awesome cool well thank you guys for joining us we really appreciate it and letting us ramble there at the end Uh, uh make sure again to uh subscribe and send us a request and until next time i'm todd i'm wes go watch the movies